What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on this week? What the hell is going on is we're just over a month into the Biden administration, and we are having our first podcast on the Biden foreign policy capitulations. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, it's happening already with what? lightning speed. I've been super surprised. So, folks, national security is the sweet spot for me and Mark, and we've been pulled away from that over the last couple of years by all of the politics. But And the, and the pandemic. And, and the, oh, yes, I forgot. And the toilet paper shortage. <laughs> <laughs> we have pressing issues to talk about, Danny. So we're coming home this week, and what we are talking about is Nord Stream 2. We are talking about— What is Nord Stream 2, Danny? Mm, it is a a very substantial Russian gas pipeline that will take from Russia, circumventing all of Eastern Europe, gas directly to Germany. Under the Baltic Sea. Under the Baltic Sea. Most of it is built. They've been building it for quite a long time. It is a hugely controversial project, and everybody will understand instantaneously why. So stop your eyes from glazing over. The reason is that it circumvents Ukraine, which has been a choke point for the export of Russian gas in recent years. What does that mean? It means that Ukraine loses any leverage it has over Russia. It means that Ukraine is even less important than it was heretofore to our European friends and allies who pretend to be friends of democracy and and freedom. And it means that the Russians are going to have something close to a chokehold on the supply of energy to Western Europe. And not just Ukraine, but all of Eastern Europe is very concerned about this because if the Russians can bypass Central Europe to get natural gas to the West, that means that if they wanted to, they could cut off energy supplies to Ukraine and to Poland and to the Baltic countries and other countries across the region. Without cutting off. Without cutting off their supplies to Western Europe. And so they know that the Western Europeans really don't care all that much about Eastern Europe and they just want their cheap gas. And so until now, if they wanted to cut off Eastern Europe, they had to cut off Western Europe and that caused a big political problem for them. And now they'll be able to circumvent them. And so this gives Putin a huge, huge geopolitical win. So who stopped the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, Danny? Donald J. Trump. Thank you. And the Trump administration. (laughs) And this is really, this is one of those truth is stranger than fiction stories. And what I mean by fiction, of course, is the mainstream media. You know, here was an administration that for all popular reporting kowtowed to Russia. Now, you and I made the case repeatedly, and, and some pretty straightforward journalists did as well, that the Trump administration was hugely tough on Russia. But one of the things that we saw during the Trump administration was as part of this perception that Trump was soft on Russia, there was all this legislation that came through the Congress that was supported by Republicans and supported by Democrats that was intended to really, really put Russia in the crosshairs. Sanctions here, sanctions there, sanctions, sanctions everywhere. (laughs) And lo and behold, what happens when Joe Biden becomes president? Mark? 
One of the upsides of the fact that Trump was not so attached to NATO was the fact that he was willing to pummel Germany over this pipeline and basically threaten that we're not just going to sanction the pipeline, we're going to sanction you. We are going to threaten German trade. We are going to threaten all these things if you build this pipeline because he knew it was a bad idea. And basically, construction on the pipeline stopped. In 2019, mind you. In 2019. And guess when it started? the week that Joe Biden came into office. And what has Joe Biden done about this? Nothing. They have a congressionally mandated report on the sanctions that they're imposing. And the Biden State Department announced that they had sanctioned a ship involved in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in this report to Congress. Turned out the ship had been sanctioned by the Trump administration before they came into office. And they were supposed to, because the construction restarted under the law, they were supposed to impose new sanctions. And they haven't done it yet. And this pipeline could be done by this summer. This could be a done deal. So they don't have a lot of time to fix this problem, Danny. Uh, So, you know, it's just everybody was so in this Donald Trump is a tool of Putin movement and and a Russian agent, uh, you know, and the Mueller report and everything else. Everyone criticized his soft rhetoric on Russia, but his actions were incredibly tough. And I think what we've got now is the reverse, where you got a president who talks tough on Russia, but is actually not willing to put his money where his mouth is and actually impose costs on both Germany and Russia for this pipeline. So I actually think this points to a larger truth. And this is something that... That Donald Trump was an incredibly effective foreign policy president? No. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you're saying, Danny? No. (laughs) Let me just say, January 6th, Thank you. You know where I stand on January 6th. Exactly. And that is the black cloud that overshadows everything and anything that was good in the in the Trump administration, of which you and I have agreed that there there certainly were some, some pretty strong elements. But what I'm trying to make is a point about Republicans and Democrats on foreign policy. And I think you touched on it when you said rhetoric. Democratic administrations have always been good on the rhetoric, good on supporting freedom, democracy, good on being tough on Russia, nuclear proliferation, of course, climate change. Except during the Cold War. Well, okay. (laughs) Let's just talk about the 21st century for a second. My favorite of this, and I'm going to say it, parents, cover your children's ears. My favorite of this bullshit rhetoric is the Atrocity Prevention Board. So the Obama administration that presided over the wanton massacre of half a million people in Syria and refused to do anything about it despite the president of the United States declaring it was a red line for him, instead created something called an Atrocity Prevention Board. This is a presidential directive. This is not some, you know, garbagey, airy-fairy think tank thing, she said, sitting (laughs) in her airy-fairy think tank. (laughs) What has the Atrocity Prevention Board done? Abso-bloody-lutely nothing. This is what the Obama administration is going to have in common with the third term of the Obama administration, the Biden administration, which is that they're going to talk a good game and do absolutely nothing. Talk a good game and allow Russia to get a stranglehold on Europe. Talk a good game and allow Iran to get towards nuclear weapons. Talk a good game and allow China to dominate the Pacific. We could go on and on here. This is a big problem. And who, Danny, uh, enforced the Obama red line? Not once, but twice? Well, you know, again, I would say not effectively. Okay. Uh, uh, not effectively. More effectively than Obama and Biden did. Yes. Well, that, that, is, that is the pathetic twice struck thing. Them. Yes. Twice struck them. That is the pathetic thing. That was his atrocity prevention board. It's a hell of a lot more effective. I mean, look, I agree with you on January 6th. 
It doesn't erase the foreign policy accomplishments, and the contrast is still striking just a month into the administration. So anyway, we've got a great guest to talk about this, and I am particularly excited because many of you listeners don't know this, but (laughs) Danny Pletka was born in Australia. They do know this. And and so she sounds like like a... plain old American, but whenever she gets on the phone with an Australian, like when she talks to her parents, and I'm, I'm in, her, in her office and she's talking to her, her mummy, uh, that all of a sudden she sounds like Crocodile Dundee. And so we have not only a great reporter on with us, but an Australian. And so you're going to get to hear, she's going to struggle, struggle hard to keep that Australian accent out, but it's going to swing through a little bit. So you're going to get to hear the Australian side of Donnie Pletka. Crikey. Thank you so much for managing to bury the lead. Our guest today, our guest today is Jonathan Swan. Jonathan is with uh, Jonathan. Jonathan Swan. He's uh, he's with Axios Media, uh, and the, the proximate cause was that Mark and I watched his truly excellent interview with Ukrainian President Zelensky that that aired last month. He is really an outstanding reporter. He's now with Axios, which is one of Washington's powerhouse reporting shops. He was with The Hill prior to that, and I'm just going to make Mark happy here and say that prior to that, he was with Fairfax Media based out of Canberra. Anyway, it's a pleasure to have him with us. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. First of all, you've done an enormous amount of reporting on the Biden administration and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But just for our listeners who don't follow this so carefully, just tell us what is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and why is it so important? So it's a gas pipeline that runs from, well, is in the process of being built. It's about 90% built that would run from Russia to Germany through the Baltic Sea. And it's important for, for several reasons. Number one, it gives Russia access, direct access to Europe. Doubles, you know, there is a Nord Stream 1, but gives them a huge amount of extra direct access to Europe in terms of gas. But number two, it really, really screws America's allies in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, particularly the Ukrainians. Ukraine beleaguered, struggling democracy. I was there about a month ago to interview President Zelensky. They depend on, well, not depend on, that's probably a bit too strong, but they benefit from being the middleman, taking Russian gas into Europe. They get substantial amount of revenue from that. And they also get leverage. They need leverage because they really don't have much else. And by doing this deal with Germany, Russia is cutting Ukraine away, which is part of their overall plan to isolate Ukraine from Europe. Ukraine's been trying to get closer to the West, join NATO. And so it's basically a deal between Germany and Russia, which is extremely galling to anyone who listens to the sort of very high and mighty German rhetoric at the United Nations talking about how horrible Russia is for annexing parts of you know eastern ukraine and what a terrible affront to ukrainian sovereignty it is and meanwhile they're doing this deal with russia that increases russian power in the region and screws over uh, america's allies like ukraine and poland so the trump administration was very tough on on germany about the nord stream 2 pipeline and imposed sanctions on companies that were involved in building it and actually brought construction to a halt what is the Biden administration doing now in its first month in office? Well, it was actually just a threat. I mean, the, the Trump administration was so vocal about this issue. Uh, so 
2019, Congress passed uh, sanctions mandating that the U.S. would sanction pipe layers involved in this project. And the U.S., President Trump was extremely aggressive. You know, he even threatened Angela Merkel kind of trade. He threatened trade with Germany. Uh, Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, was very, very aggressive, basically saying, get out now, you know, you know whatever. And, and construction halted. So major construction halted on the pipeline in December 2019 and basically was frozen because they legitimately were worried that the Trump administration would not just sanction Russian vessels, but potentially go all the way and sanction German utilities, you know, end users of the gas. Trump made very clear that he had no concerns about pissing off Germany. Anyway, so fast forward, the defense bill gets over a presidential veto, over Trump's veto, gets passed into law in January, and that has an even broader array of sanctions. Congress clarifying the initial bill, making clear that they want anyone, you know, that includes insurance companies, all sorts of people who are peripherally involved in helping this pipeline come to fruition, sanction them all. And Trump leaves office. And then Biden comes in and major construction resumes on the pipeline. So Biden's public stance is, you know, it's a bad deal. We we want to stop it, blah, blah, blah. But it's pretty clear that that's not exactly scaring the Russians or anyone involved in this pipeline. A number of companies pulled out, but that was really under threats from the Trump administration and major construction resumed in early February. So now the Biden administration faces a choice, which is how aggressive are they willing to be to try to stop the final 10% of this pipeline being built? And are they willing to upset the Germans who they are trying to rebuild a warmer relationship with? These are really big questions. It's the first, well, you might say it's the second test of whether Biden's going to be tough on Russia rather than just talk tough on Russia. He very quickly approved an extension of the New START deal, which um, Putin was very happy about. But let's call it the second big test of whether his actions on Russia are going to match his rhetoric. And so far, actually, both Democrats and Republicans on the Hill have been underwhelmed by what he's what they've um, put out in terms of the State Department report to Congress. Jonathan, we've been talking about American dynamics. We've been talking about Moscow's interests. What I don't get here is Germany. Sure, you know, we can look back and, and see that German leaders on pretty much every part of the political spectrum have been soft on Russia. I mean, one uh, one former chancellor going so far as to as to leave office and go and join Gazprom, the big Russian uh, state-owned gas megalith. But honestly, when weighed against these other interests that you laid out, whether it's Ukraine, the freedom of Central Europe, or even having Western Europe kind of in, in, in Russia's gun sites because of this control over energy supplies, why is Germany doing this? Well, so there's a few things to unpack in there. Number one is the general question is, you know, do these major European powers actually give a shit about Ukraine? And when you're in Ukraine talking to the senior people, it's pretty clear that everyone there understands that, you know, these people are at best fair weather friends. I mean, there's not, you know, a huge amount of resolve inside the leadership of Germany for sticking up for Ukraine. The other issue is with all this gas going through Ukraine, Russia has a history of, of shutting it off. 
to punish the Ukrainians. So, you know, when they get involved in disputes with Ukraine, it's an opportunity for Russia to use their energy as leverage. This takes Ukraine out of the picture and, and is a direct line to Europe. You can overstate the extent to which Russia has, you know, sort of power over them. I think that's, that could be really pretty heavily overstated. But I don't think there's much evidence at all that Germany is willing to really spend political capital defending Ukraine and Poland. I don't see any evidence of that. And if they don't believe that the United States is going to impose real costs on them, well, then they go through with it. So, I mean, fair enough. Right. They're all a bunch of hypocrites, you know, newsflash. Uh, They don't really care about Ukraine, newsflash. And even on the political side, wow, the Trump administration, which was supposedly in bed with Vladimir Putin and in some, you know, in some stories working for Vladimir Putin actually was tougher on the Russians over this than the incoming Democrats are. Okay, those are all things that pretty much any honest person could see. But even if we assess that that it's not the majority of gas that the Europeans are getting from Russia, it's still a pretty substantial portion. If you then add in that part of the LNG that they're getting, the liquefied natural gas that they're getting, is from the United States that was engaged in fracking before, the United mm-hmm. States that had go. a substantial... Then you really are looking at basically a European plan to... to to use the metaphor you didn't want to use, to basically supply their short hairs to Moscow and say, here, you can have a grip on them. Why not? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I can can hear you trying to get over that repulsive Uh, metaphor, so I'm sorry. Yeah, wow. This is what you get when you get two Australians Um, talking together uh, about politics. Europe sucks, pretty much covers it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I mean, like... It's so phony. I mean, it's just it's just so phony hearing the the hawkish rhetoric about Russia when when you hear the Germans go to the UN and just rail about Russia. It's just so phony. It doesn't comport with what they're actually doing. But it's also not just Europe sucks. I mean, look at what the Biden administration is doing. These sanctions were supposed to get it triggered when the work started again, and they're really not. They announced that they were sanctioning one ship that Trump had already sanctioned and tried to take credit for. They got called out by a AP reporter on that during the State Department press briefing. But you know, they seem more anxious to stop the Keystone XL pipeline than they do the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They're standing by while, while Merkel is expanding dependence on Russian gas. At the same time, they're cracking down on our production here at home of the gas that actually we're, our exports are what the alternative is to Russian gas. Isn't the Biden administration really acting in a way that's going to increase European dependence on Russia and thus Russia's power over not just Central Europe and Eastern Europe, but, but all of Europe? Well, so their argument is, you know, I reported there was a couple of calls that the Biden administration had with the Hill last week that didn't go particularly well. And the second call was on Thursday afternoon. And so this was with national security advisors from House and Senate officers, Democrats and Republicans. And there was this quite telling moment in the phone call. So you've got senior State Department officials briefing them. And the questioning was pretty aggressive about why didn't you sanction? We're seeing maritime tracking information that shows, you know, all these ships. Uh, it's not just the Fortuna, which was the one that Trump already sanctioned and that they repeated 
uh, targeting for sanctions. But there's all these other ones. We can see it. They've actually sent a list, people in the House Fair Foreign Affairs Committee, to the Secretary of State saying, here are these vessels. Why aren't you mentioning them? And then there was this moment when one of the Republican national security aides on the call said, why haven't you sanctioned Nord Stream to AG, which is the company <laughs> involved, like the, literally the company in charge of the operation of this pipeline? And, and the, the response was, well, we're not going to talk about specific individual entities. And, and this is on the call. This is playing out. And this, this aide said, well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm on their website right now, and they say that they are the company in charge of the operation, planning, and construction of the North Stream Power. So I'm just curious, like, what additional information you need <laughs> to determine that the company that owns, you know, that's in charge of this pipeline that you've determined, you know, is sanctionable activity is itself sanctionable. I, I'm just curious. And, you know, they're like, oh, we're not going to talk about, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the line, the line that they're using is that it takes time. And, you know, there's some irritation that's been expressed to me from some folks who are sympathetic to what they're doing to say, you know, it's not fair to be piling on the Biden administration. You've got to give them time to, like, make sure that they cross all the T's and dot all the I's, you know, on sanctions, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the Trump administration only started sanctioning, you know, two minutes ago. And the response to that is, that is true. However, the mere threat of sanctions under the Trump administration stopped construction of the pipeline. So it was halted and it resumed major construction under the Biden administration. So there's a, it's, it's not exactly sort of fair to say, well, the Trump people were sort of sitting on their hands because what they had done rhetorically was obviously believed and listened to in Moscow and with some of these companies working on this. So they're a real question to ask. And the problem is they don't have time. It's not like they've got this sort of endless window of time. You know, if... if it's 90% done, isn't it? 90% done. And from what I understand, again, I, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I've talked to plenty of experts on this and people who study this. You know, this could be completed by the summer without a major intervention. So it's not like they've got this huge window of time to you know, figure it out. And meanwhile, the Germans are trying to get some kind of a deal with the US to, to allow it to happen. And the Biden people have pushed back pretty strenuously on that and said that they're not negotiating with the Germans and, and that they won't. They, they want to stop this pipeline. Well, that seems hardly credible. You know, uh, for a lot of people who haven't been in Washington for quite as long as Mark and I have, um, you know, this may sound like a, a, a sort of a strange story. But in fact, what this reminds me of most forcibly are the unbelievably lame arguments made in the 1990s by the Clinton administration about sanctioning companies helping Iran's nuclear and missile programs. It was Always. And, you know, it was the exact same relationship with Capitol Hill, which is that Democrats and Republicans stood together with the against the administration saying, I'm sorry, what more evidence do you need? And Jonathan, you, they're right in claiming that it requires su substantial research. You do have to cross your T's and dot your I's in order to impose sanctions. But in the case of Nord Stream, <laughs> the Nord Stream company itself, that's hardly credible. Now, we know how far Iran has progressed. You know, Russia, given this, this source of income and this, and this sort of vice-like grip on Europe, I mean, they now control, even after 2020, after COVID, they control almost 40% of the European market. So 
it really does argue to the fact that the Biden administration is not does not intend to be serious about it. Well, we're going to find out very, I mean, that's certainly, from their first report that they sent to Congress, it, it's hard to draw any other conclusion. And I think we're going to learn very, very quickly whether they're actually going to reverse course and put real muscle into this. We'll, we'll know that in a matter of weeks. The other thing that's uh, come into play since the Trump administration announced its campaign against Nord Stream is, of course, what happened to Alexei Navalny um, and the fact that he was poisoned and then went back to Russia and was immediately jailed, you know, on arrival and the protests going on there. And so, I mean, is it a little bit incongruous at the time when, you know, I mean, the Europeans are saying we need to get tough with Russia on, on Navalny that, you know, we're, the Biden administration is relaxed and Biden has made a, a big statement about Navalny and solidarity with Navalny. They seem to not be willing to crack down on this. The French even have said that we need to stop Nord Stream 2 in response to Navalny. So when the French are the backbone of Europe, you know that there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it, it just comes back to the same theme again and again, right? Actions versus rhetoric. And we're, we're hearing plenty of really hawkish, aggressive rhetoric. And again, this is a really clear, measurable test of action. And again, what we're seeing so far is just not congruent with the rhetoric at all. So quick last question for me. And this is the one where, you know, I, I'm going to ask you a realist question. I'm not much of a realist, at least according to the common definition. But the Biden administration says they want to repair relationships with our allies, which I get. You know, Donald Trump sort of stomped heavily over over Marcus rolling his eyes right now. I wish you could see him. But he did. Rhetorically, he stomped all over NATO. He did a lot of rhetorical damage. Let's put it that way. What is the Biden administration want out of this repaired relationship with Germany, do you think? And I wonder whether Zelensky, the, the Ukrainian leadership, had any speculation about, you know, what are we hoping that we're going to get out of Germany in order to cut them this slack on Nord Stream 2? Well, I don't have any reporting on that marriage of this for that uh, in terms of Nord Stream 2, but just taking Nord Stream 2 out of it, I mean, they've been pretty clear about what they want out of the allies number one is is climate change like john kerry has this has been appointed as this international envoy on climate change and you're already seeing folks who are hawkish on china quite worried about the potential of a kerry influenced biden policy that would give china passes on certain things in, in exchange for another, you know, international deal on climate. Now, the Biden folks, there actually are a bunch of people who internally would push back on that and, and that, that, that that's not going to happen, blah, blah, blah. We'll, we'll find out and we'll see. But the other thing that they say is they want to build a coalition against China. And that strikes me as a little hard to, uh, to foresee because the Europeans are doing investment deals with China and have exhibited no... Again, it's like, just look at what they're actually doing as opposed to saying. And it's just, I don't really see how, how that's going to work out because I don't see a huge appetite from the Germans in you know, stepping up and confronting China. Quite the opposite. We're seeing cooperation and investment deals and the rest of it. 
So exit question from me and and switching gears just briefly, because you you covered the Trump administration up close. You interviewed President Trump a number of times. Uh, he spoke at CPAC on Sunday. And I'm just interested in your impressions of, uh, of Trump's speech. And do you think he will be the Republican nominee in 2024? I, I thought a few things from his speech. Obviously, he's very made very clear he's not going away, which we knew. Um, obviously, he singled out a list of Republicans who had voted to impeach him and convict him and sort of put a target on them. And it's pretty clear he's, you know, he's already endorsed one of his former aides to primary one of these folks. And I think he's going to get involved there. As far as for the content of his speech, I, I thought it was notable how heavily he focused on immigration. Obviously, it's been a core theme of, of Trump going back to his you know, announcement in 2015. But he really spent more of that speech, you know, I've watched more speeches than I could count from Trump. And this is one of the longest speeches on immigration that I've heard. And I think they, well, I know, because I've spoken to some of his aides, they view Biden's early moves on immigration and particularly the rising number of um, unaccompanied children coming to the border as an opportunity to absolutely hammer him early on and damage him early on. So I think you saw that in the speech. That was probably what I pulled out of it most. Obviously, he still hasn't given up on you know saying he, he won the election and all the rest of it. But I mean, we know that. We know that's what he, you know, he's never going to stop doing that. So um, and is he going to be the nominee? Out of it. Well, I think if he actually decides to run, it's awfully hard to beat him. I mean, a lot can change in four years. But I mean, especially if the field is reasonably large, the base still has an incredible attachment to him. And I wouldn't bet against him. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I think you'd be pretty foolish to put money against Donald Trump in a Republican primary. And on that extraordinarily depressing note, in fact, the, this, was, this was a pretty depressing conversation. <laughs> Thanks a ton, Jonathan. Yeah, well, we're going to race to have you back as soon as I refill my Prozac bottle. What do you bottle. want me to tell you? Nikki, Nikki Haley's going to beat Trump in a Republican primary? I'm sorry. I don't care. <laughs> we're basically, let's see, Putin's doing really well. Our allies are all a bunch of lily-livered you know, lackeys for Putin and Donald Trump is going to be the nominee in 2024. Fine. I'm done with you. <laughs> no, actually, thank you. You were terrific. I really, we, I think Mark and I both very much enjoyed your, your reporting and your interview. You all are in partnership with HBO to run these and it's, it's. And we'll uh, link to that on the, in the, in the transcript, both to the, yeah. both to your reporting and to, and to that terrific interview with Zelensky. But so thank you really for making the time for us. We're, we're, we're actually grateful. My statement's notwithstanding. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just impressed that Danny got through the interview without saying crikey. Crikey, Matt. <laughs> there you go. Makes all the difference to him. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so Danny, first of all, I am deeply disappointed in the lack of Australian dialect that I heard from this interview. <laughs> and I know you've worked, it was a struggle for you <laughs> to, to speak, speak American English. Um, Though it's always a struggle for you to speak English. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, uh, listen, uh, I can hear even Jonathan is sort of losing his Australian accent, uh, which is which is a, sh a shame for everybody here. But I think this is one of those issues where people are not going to want to 
dig in because they're going to hear Nordstrom too, and what does that mean and do I really have to learn a lot? And the answer is no. Actually, this is yesterday's news tomorrow. This is the Europeans going back to being what they always have been, cheese-eating <laughs> surrender monkeys. <laughs> and, and, and a democratic administration that talked tough, not being tough enough on the likes of Angela Merkel, who should, for all of her rhetoric, caring about Ukraine, caring about freedom, caring about democracy, be tough on Russia. And not only are the Europeans cheese-eating surrender monkeys, in the famous words of P.G. O'Rourke, but uh, apparently we have surrender monkeys in the in the Biden White House as well you know, on this issue. I mean, time is of the essence. They've got to stop this. And, you know, this is the, the Democrats became Russia hawks the moment the Cold War ended. Right. They were all for appeasement. And Joe Biden, to his credit, was, you know, we both worked with Senator Jesse Helms. And back in the 70s, when he was a junior senator from from Delaware, I think 28 years old or something like that, you know, when the Ford administration wouldn't invite Alexander Solzhenitsyn to Washington, Helms and Biden together invited Solzhenitsyn. So he's genuine in his uh, concern about Russia. But this is the problem with the Democratic Party, which is that they, as a party, never were concerned about Russia. And, you know, they didn't when they were building nuclear weapons, when they were putting people in the gulag. But as soon as Russia leaked Hillary Clinton's emails, all of a sudden that was a line. <laughs> they had the, crossed a line. That that's would, the you know, straw that broke the camel's exactly. back, damn it. And so now all of a sudden, the Trump era and, and Putin's election interference turned the Democrats supposedly into post-Cold War cold warriors. Uh, all of a sudden, they were like, channeling their inner Joe McCarthy when it came to Russia. But now all of a sudden that Trump is gone, it's back to it's business back as to usual. It's back to business as usual. It's back, back to, to appeasement. And remember Obama's famous line, of yes. course, which, you know, when in debating with Mitt Romney was, you know, the 80s called, they want their foreign policy back, right? And that was about Russia. So I think this is an opportunity for Congress. You know how much we have missed normal times, right? We've missed the normal interplay between between our branches of government. We've missed parties behaving like, like as they usually do. Okay, so here are the Democrats. They've gone back to behaving as they usually do. Now Didn't miss the, it so much now. Oh, well, I don't miss know, it so much. You know, something I, I'm, I, one thing I don't miss is the crazy of the last four years. And now is an opportunity because there are lots and lots of Biden administration people in the national security sphere who have not been confirmed yet. Yeah. Okay, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you're at a 50-50 split in the Congress. That means you lose one person. Now is the time to hold these people's feet to the fire. What is the administration's policy going to be on this? Are you going to allow Nord Stream 2 to be finished? Do you actually care about Ukraine? Do you actually care about what Putin is up to? What about Alexei Navalny? Now, all of those These questions... Are questions for Torio Newland and Wendy Sherman in their confirmation. That's here. exactly right. And I know them both very well. I am confident in their ability to answer them. But what you want to see is a connection between those answers and the actual policy of the administration. I will add to you, though, one, a theme that we've talked about, especially when we talked about the Abraham Accords which is that the lack of normalcy of the last four years is a double-edged sword. There were definitely some downsides of it, and you and I have both been clear about that. But the reality is, is that the lack of normalcy and anti-establishment tenor that the Trump administration brought to foreign policy is why we have the Abraham Accords, because they didn't say, oh, well, this is how it's always been done. Peace goes through Ramallah. There's no separate peace with the Arab-Israeli peace. It can't happen. We can't move our embassy to Jerusalem because that'll set the region on fire. And Trump threw all that out because he's like, I don't care about that. 
Right. Uh, I don't believe that. No, I mean, and so like, he got, and so he, literally a Nobel Prize worthy achievement with the four Arab and Israeli peace accords. And it's the same thing on a smaller scale with this Nord Stream pipeline, which is that every, you know, well, we can't get a, Angela Merkel's our ally. Germany are they're in NATO. We we can't beat up on our NATO allies. We have to we we can't do anything. And Trump didn't care about that. And so he literally said. I will not just sanction the pipeline. I'm going to wrestle your economy to the ground if you do this. And they were afraid and they stopped. And there is sometimes an advantage to having a disruptor for all, for all the downsides of it. And we've I've been clear about where I stand on the downsides. There is an upside to having an outsider come in who is not tied to the conventional wisdom and is willing to break China in order to get real foreign policy accomplishments done. And this was an example where one, where the Biden administration is reversing through inaction what the Trump administration accomplished, which was an important accomplishment. You give me the perfect segue to my question because of your <laughs> because of your Trump nostalgia. Four weeks. Four weeks is all it took, folks. Four or five weeks. I'm not, so I want to know what you thought about that. I, I'm able to hold can, these two things. I'm you not, can chew gum and walk. I wish more people could do that, Danny. Uh, I know. I, I know you well enough to know you can't chew gum and walk. But, but let me ask you the same <laughs> question you asked Jonathan. What did you think about Trump's CPAC speech? So... Here, here's the interesting thing. So I thought for Donald Trump, he was incredibly disciplined. He didn't mention Liz Cheney until an hour and 15 minutes into the speech. Um, he didn't mention impeachment once, but he gave a very substantive policy-driven attack on the Biden administration in defense of his record. That signals to me that at least for the moment, and these things are fleeting with Donald Trump, he recognizes that he did himself some damage. Um, and that he needs to uh, take a more a more substantive approach. Maybe it's people talked him out of it, or and he was planning to do something entirely different and listened. I don't know. But here's the thing that I thought that was really interesting about CPAC was 95% of CPAC, they did a straw poll, McLaughlin, about that. 95% of Republicans want the Republican Party to continue the policies and issues of the Trump administration. But when they did a straw poll and they asked the question, if Donald Trump is on the ballot... Who will you support? Only 55% said that they would vote for Donald Trump. I think it was 21% said uh, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, very pro-Trump. Another 11% said Kirstie Noem, the governor of South Dakota, also very pro-Trump. So the pro-Trump vote is very strong, but those people love Donald Trump. But they were, but I think but the cult of they, personality isn't as big as the press is telling us and, it is. And, and it's exactly right. And also, I think they realize that Trump lost a winnable election. I think this is a fact that the 2020 election was not a repudiation of Trumpism. It was a repudiation of Trump as the person and his behavior. And there were millions of voters who supported Donald Trump's policies but didn't like him and said that their dislike of him was more important than their support of the policies and chose not to vote for him. And Republicans realize they need a lot of, and this is this is the most this is not just Republican writ large. This is the pro, biggest pro-Trump section of the GOP base. Even they recognize that we need to win those people back. Well, from from your mouth to God's ears, or at least a God of politics, folks, you know what we want from you: listen, subscribe, share complain it with your friends. Complain about Danny. Complain about Danny. Complain about Mark. Share it with your friends, share it with your enemies, comment, <laughs> let us know Let us know what you like, and let us know if you have ideas. We really do appreciate your emails an awful lot. Take care for this week. Remember, complaints, oh yeah, they're not coming to me. Compliments to Mark. He's really good. He's, he's almost buried under the avalanche. And uh, <laughs> Mikey, it's a crock with razor sharp teeth. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, complaints to Alexa. 
<laughs> oh my God. You can turn this off now. Bye, everyone. <laughs> and our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.